Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Navigating the Real Estate Market with these three incredible New Orleans experts. We have John Payne, who's the CEO of Vici Properties. They own MGM Grand, the Venetian, Caesars Palace, most of the of Las Vegas, and even Haras over in New Orleans. They triple net lease the ground for the operators that own these casinos. We have Tara Hernandez, who is a builder of creative assets and one of the biggest developments in New Orleans, which is the Riverfront District. It's going to be built over the next 10 years, and it's going to change the landscape of New Orleans. It's going to be an amazing development. We're going to hear a little bit about it today. And we have Colin Mamis, who's the managing director of North um, North Companies, which is the New Orleans real estate um, fund that does opportunity zones and historical tax credits. So three completely different investment strategies with experts in their fields. It's an amazing panel. I'm super excited for you to tune in. So get ready to learn about technology trends, macroeconomic trends, investing trends, governmental tax trends, New Orleans trends. It's great. Um, excited for you to tune in. Enjoy. Woo, how's everybody? Good. I wasn't loud enough. Oh, okay, I know. <laughs> I'm a mom. Really, my my voice can carry. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, give a couple more minutes, more minutes for people to yeah. trickle in. But um, if you haven't signed in, you gotta make sure to do that. But um, all good. I appreciate everyone coming out. Hope uh, everyone's been excited. It's been a amazing journey to create this event, and hoping everyone learns a lot. It's gonna be a good time. But um, but yeah. So I guess we'll. Start in a few minutes. Um, good with signings and whatnot. Yes. Cool. Ready to go? All right. Cool. So yeah, thanks for everything. Yes. Uh-huh. A lot of forms to be signed. Forms, man. Paperwork. Sweet. So yeah, thanks to everyone for coming out today. We will be covering the, well, we'll be navigating the crazy or evolving real estate market that. You know, everyone's probably been reading around the news. Definitely not the same as it was a year ago, and um, a lot of changes have been going on. But we luckily have some of the experts in the industry to help us navigate and understand what's going on. So it's going to be a great, great experience for learning. But um, to start, could we uh, just all introduce ourselves? Maybe starting with John. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I hope we have a fun night together and you, you take something away from it. My name is John Payne. I am the uh, president of Vici Properties. Uh, Vici is a uh, real estate investment trust. We're based in New York City, uh, but I happen to live two minutes away. Uh, I refused to move to New York when we started the company five years ago. We'll get into a little bit more detail about uh, what we do, but we own uh, what we would describe as experiential real estate and lease it back to operators. We specialize in the casino business, and we'll probably get into a little bit of details on that. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, definitely. If you want to mention it, a couple couple words, you know, what kind of properties or what are the properties that you, you own? 
Uh, we own a, little, a few small assets. Uh, we're the largest real estate owner in Las Vegas. We own assets that you all might know, like Caesars Palace, the Venetian, MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, um, a few others that we own, New York, New York, uh, the Luxor. So we have 10 assets in Las Vegas, and we lease them back to world-class operators. Great, and I'm sure some of the audience is familiar with the... Uh... I heard some shaking of the heads. Most probably have the sports app, book app on there. Yeah, got it. Great. All right, good. Hi, everybody. Um, Tara Hernandez. I wear a couple hats. So the first one is I'm a real estate developer and uh, also do real estate brokerage. But the other half of my life, I, uh, I run a tech investment fund. So we invest in early to late stage tech companies. So I think that's going to integrate today and happy to, uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Guys, my name is Colin Momus. Uh, I am managing director of North Companies. We originally branded as New Orleans Development in 2013. We started. Um, uh, we started the company with us. We were actually two lane alums. Uh, I met them at Freeman Day's event. Um, and uh, we uh, started with, with the thought of developing uh, projects and properties in and around kind of some of the infrastructure and uh, investment that was happening in Mid-City. So we've started uh, some small funds, friends and family. We've grown the company uh, over about a 10-year period now. Um, we really focus on historic tax credits primarily, uh, and we overlap tax advantage strategies. Uh, and right now, what we're focused on is in <coughs> excuse me, investing in opportunity zones. So for the last three or four years, we've been focused on opportunity zone investing, and something I'm happy to share a little bit more as we go. Great. So I'm Ben Malik. I'm the Joe and I, Joe Sulu and I, founded the Real Estate Power Players um, group here at Tulane last year and it's been growing very rapidly and we appreciate everyone who's joined and uh, has come out and anyone who hasn't joined yet, it's going to be a, a great time to, to do so. Um, but yeah, a little bit of background about me. Um, I've been interested in real estate for quite a while. Uh, Mom is an attorney, does real estate transactions, so kind of grew up around it, reading loan docs when I was 10 because I'm for some reason I thought that would be a good idea. Um, and yeah, just as I've grown up, my uh, interest in investments has brought me closer into real estate and it's been um, a great journey. And realizing that networking is a big part of the industry and meeting the people that we're gonna do deals with in the future, it's great to have this opportunity to meet all of you and um, build relationships and um, learn from each other and, and share best practices and whatnot. So I'm very excited to do all that. Um, I'm also the host of the Real Estate Milestones podcast, with it, which is on uh, all platforms around there. But um, we learn about real estate, the journey through com commercial real estate, try to figure out what's going on in the industry and how you can get involved. So I like to ask each of the panelists one of the questions that are, is always asked on the podcast, which is, what was your first milestone in real estate? Well, uh, when I was in college, I... Uh, literally got my license and I started and jumped in there so I always knew um, early on that I wanted to participate in some way. What's well, important to know I, I'm not a long-term real estate executive. I think that's in, and I'm, I come from a little bit of a different background. I, I spent 23 years in the casino business so I, I came out real estate uh, from an operator's perspective and I worked for a company called Caesars Entertainment that had a, a one of its subsidiaries go bank bankrupt and what happened in that bankruptcy is that subsidiary split and the operations went back to the operator and a new real estate investment trust called Vici was formed in October of 17. So really at my, my beginning just started a little over five years ago 
And the first deal I did was uh, uh, we bought a, a casino called Harris Las Vegas um, 30 days after we started the company. Great. Myself, uh, my first project, the first two projects, it actually brought me to Tulane. It was uh, 2007, 2008. I'm born and raised in New Orleans, moved back to New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. I really wanted to help my family, but felt the city was kind of part of my family as well. just wanted to come back and rebuild. Uh, I was on my second duplex that I was renovating right down the street. Uh, in 2008, and I was going into the bank to finish my last draw, and the banker at Hibernia at the time, which got brought into Capital One, told me, said, look, I don't know what's coming down the pipe, but something bad's happening. He's like, I can't give you this loan just to pay. It was a small signature loan to pay our contractor so he can get his money early. He goes, you're going to have to go through the whole process and just, just wait a few weeks, but in the future, I'm telling you now, something bad's coming. And so this was the first thing I realized, like, well, that's going to be interesting. And within three weeks, I mean, capital markets were locked up. Luckily, I was on the back end of my project, so I knew that, you know, I wasn't left in a situation where I couldn't even draw the rest of my construction loan. But I realized at that point that I, I had a passion for doing real estate development. Uh, and I wanted to go back to school and really, you know, figure out how to put larger projects together. So for me, you know, smaller projects just like that, I saw kind of the good, the bad, and ugly really quickly. And um, it, it really made me want to come back to school uh, and figure things out. Great. And before we get into the, the market and what's going on in the current environment, could you guys each just give us a little bit of background of what your companies do and what you do as within real estate? Do you want to start? Sure, I'll have to start. So um, I mentioned earlier Opportunity Zones. Really, it's our, our focus over the last three or four years. Um, so when, when individuals create a capital gain, they can sell investment property, they can sell stocks or bonds, they can sell a baseball card collection. It doesn't matter what they do. If they generate a capital gain, we know that you have to pay a capital gain tax. So what these individuals do, they say, look, I really don't want to pay my capital gain tax this year. I'd like to maybe reinvest it and see if I can defer my capital gain and then at some point, you know, have tax benefits in the long run. So their Opportunity Zone funds was created in uh, the Jobs and Tax Act of 2017 where you can take a capital gain, you can invest it with an Opportunity Zone fund. That Opportunity Zone fund then takes your capital and goes invested into certain, um, certain geographical uh, districts that are set up around the, the country. And that's what we tend to do. We take Opportunity Zone investments and we go invest those into um, the zones. Typically those zones run similar to low-income housing census tracts, uh, but not always. They were dictated by the governors of each state. Uh, and what we do, we look for distressed properties in these, in these communities and we look for the ability to kind of have transformative catalytic projects we can come in. Typically we look for you know, assets that are you know, blighted or distressed and that we can come in, acquire, completely redevelop. We typically use historic tax credits where we can um, to try to renovate projects and we look for an overlap and we're able to marry those two programs together. Uh, again, we've been doing this for about four years. The interesting thing is, you know, you have to hold a project, a property for 10 years or an investment for 10 years in the Opportunity Zones in order for you to, to realize the full benefit of the, of the investment. And so uh, for us, it's really a long-term uh, investment and a partnership with a lot of the communities that we're in. So when we're going investing in locations, it's not necessarily just looking at an asset. We're really uh, getting to know the, the, local, um, the local people, the local government, the local, um, you know, business community and, and people that live there to make sure that they understand that we're there for the long haul. Uh, and so it's something that you know, we're focused on and we continue to do. Good explanation. So um, aside from the brokerage arms, we convert underutilized real estate into cool creative spaces, right? So in and off the downtowns, we look for opportunities similar to what he does. The majority of them have been public-private partnerships, so we have been leading as the catalytic investor to basically transform a neighborhood. 
And so um, that, you know, in real estate, there's, in terms of development, is either two things, a use looking for a piece of dirt or dirt looking for a use, right? It's going to go either way. And so we are usually within those footprints. And I would say near the arts district, near sports stadiums, you know, you want to be on the um, edge of the cool stuff that's happening and slowly build into, you know, that fringe and, and build the fringe into it. And so that's our strategic uh, approach. Right now, I'm a part of the development team doing a brand new neighborhood on the river, on the riverfront called the River District. So all that vacant land at the end of the convention center on the river, on both sides of Chapatulas, including the power plant, is going to be called the River District. And so we're transforming all of that into everything that a neighbor should, neighborhood should include. You did a good job putting together a panel that has a very diverse group of what we do. Um, right. Right? I mean, really, it's, this, is, this is really good for you all because many of you probably have said, hey, I want to get into real estate. You're going to see three very different areas of real estate. So as I stated, I work for a company called Vici Properties. We are a publicly traded uh, uh, company. We are a triple net lease REIT. So we go out and we buy buildings and land and we lease them back in a triple net lease to great operators. So as we said earlier, we own Caesars Palace. There's probably very few people in the world that knows that Vici Properties own Caesars Palace. Most people believe, who owns Caesars Palace? Caesars, the company is the tenant that runs it. Okay? That's what, that is what we do. We go out and find opportunities to acquire assets and lease them back to operators. Now, we started this in the casino business. We saw this amazing opportunity to institutionalize the casino business, and we've done that pretty rapidly. We've done probably about $30 billion of deals in about four years. But we always started the company, we knew it'd be what we call experiential real estate. So not only will we continue to buy casinos, we are in the process of buying things like indoor water parks. You might have heard of Great Wolf Lodges. We just announced a deal with Canyon Ranch. We just announced a deal with a golf developer called Cabot. And so you're going to see Vici over the next decade not only continue to buy casino companies or casino assets and lease them back to companies, you're going to see us diversify into all of these areas. And part of the reason we're doing that is there's only certain states that legalize gambling in the United States. So we can only own real estate in those states. So if we want to own real estate in Texas or Florida or Georgia, we need to diversify into other experiential real estate. And so that's what we do. Excellent. And so it's very interesting because uh, your company has been started, I guess, five years ago or four years ago. That's not too long ago to have done as much and own as much as you do. I, I'm kind of curious, how did VG come to be? How did that get assembled? We worked hard. You know, we went out, we, we, as I told you, we, we started in 17, we went public uh, in 2018, and we've done about $30 billion of, of deals by just hustling, finding these opportunities where we didn't think the market really understood the value of casinos and casino real estate. Um, and so we've just been very active. I, it, again, I'm an unusual executive in that I've taken an operator's approach. We were talking about this earlier, that I... Uh, I didn't know when I left operations of a casino, would I add any value to a real estate company? 
And what we found in this space in particular, that the C-suites or the CEOs of companies or the COOs or the presidents who are negotiating deals with me have liked to have someone on the other side that understood what they were trying to solve for. And so uh, we, we've moved fast. We've had great, um, uh, really, support from institutional investors. And uh, that's really how we've, we've grown, grown the company. Excellent. And, and that's important because a lot of times people go um, or seek to acquire something without understanding, you know, the actual real estate, how it works, how the op team, ops team needs to maneuver. And so if John's looking at property um, and I'm looking at a casino, he, he's got a, a huge head start because he understands how it operates and what works best for them as opposed to me coming in blindly. And when you're negotiating a lease, our leases are 300 pages. I'm sure you'd love looking at that. Um, uh, there are points in the lease that matter to an operator that if you don't know why they matter to the operator, you will stick your heels in the ground and say, well, that's what leases look like. And so we've, we've been a little bit, you know, we should have said, we started this company by saying we're going to be a real estate company based on relationships that we do not look at each trans, as we're not a transactional company. Every time we do a deal with a partner, we hope it leads to another deal. And if you've, any of you have followed our history, that has played out and it's important. And so there's times we give in on things on leases that other uh, REITs wouldn't do because we say, look, it's not great for us, but it's important for you and we think it'll lead to another deal. Yeah. I've noticed that in the rights of first refusal you have with sure. many of the companies that you negotiate with. So, yeah, definitely what, later on I'm going to ask a little bit about the lease terms that are in the, this complex industry. But for, for Tara, so um, you create cool and creative assets. I think it's a very it's a strong model and very, um, you know, I think indicative of what we like to see in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about your investment philosophy and hear about you know an example like Blue Plate seems like a really interesting sure. development. Actually, that's a good example because somebody asked me about that earlier today. And so you'll understand. So first of all, um, we can create new buildings and they're great. But when you have some old bones, right, that you can bring back to life. And so some of them are Blue Plate and the of the uh, American can and some others that I've touched here I'm literally my coolness factor is having you understand that the old was there but transforming to the new and how do I do that there's a story everybody loves a story and the story is taking some of those components of how that old manufacturing facility um, functioned and I'll hire a sculptor and they will recreate. And so those pieces are throughout the property. It's branded in the messaging of all the things that we do, whether it be name, whether it be logo, whether it be website, it's all part of the story. And so the example of uh, Blue Plate, they used to make mayonnaise, barbecue sauce, and um, salad dressing there, right? And my target market, you always know your customer. If you don't know your customer, you won't make the best decisions. It's really important. If I tell you anything, you just know your customer. And if I say I want to do an apartment building, right, this is a little bit of strategy. An apartment building in the suburbs and an apartment building in the warehouse district has totally different customers. Some of them want space 
They might want carpet. You better not do that in the warehouse district. You better not do that downtown. And you want the high ceilings. Because it's more expensive, people like their location. So they're okay to sacrifice square footage. But you give them amenities, because they hang out in the kitchen or they hang out in community spaces, that pays, you know, that, that, that is a good offset as opposed to what might happen in a, in a suburban uh, context. And so there are all these little nuances. But essentially, if I can't create something that I know I'm going to have a connection with my customer, I'm not going to do my job. And I'm not going to meet whatever my development or financial and otherwise goals are. And so also my customer likes to hang out in the cool spaces, right? And so that's they want to walk to eat. They want to walk to entertainment. They want to walk to sports. Of all, all these things, it's a lifestyle. It's more of a lifestyle um, than just a living situation. So that, that's part of that. Then there's some where I have ground floor retail or I've done independent retail. So our strategy is literally to be in those spaces because my customer will be able to adapt to any of those types of developments. I hope that helps. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Colin, so first I want to mention that, uh, remind everyone that he's a Tulanean like all of us, so right. I'd love to hear you touch on your experience with Tulane, but also North is vertically integrated or has their, you know, I guess their fingers in all the different parts of operating and developing and managing real estate. So I want to hear how it's competitive advantage and you know how, how that works in your company. Oh, great. So going back to what, what I was saying earlier, I, I met my two business partners um, at a Freeman Days event here uh, and I'd come back to business school. I got my MBA in 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, <clears throat> and so we, uh, you know, we started the company and they, they actually had a horrible thesis. They were like, hey, we're going to do this type of you know, asset. We want to do kind of um, quick, quick rehabs. And I'm like, guys, these, these type of rehabs aren't going to last five years. Like we need to take the money, we need to invest wisely. These areas are prime for investment. And kind of speaking to what Tara was saying, we knew who our target market was. They're young professionals, people who wanted to be living in the neighborhoods and they wanted the experience of these houses. And so we really took the time, evolved the thesis and, and create these you know, duplex shotgun, shotgun duplex homes that were, uh, I'm still proud to this day of all, you know, hundreds some odd duplexes that we put into Mid-City all around the new hospitals uh, and, and all the tenants that were incredibly happy. Um, going kind of to, to the company, so one of my business partners, Alex Hernandez, is a Tulane alum as well. He is a CEO of Hernandez Consulting and Construction. Uh, he and I started with one of our other partners, Mike, North Companies. We were branded the World's Redevelopment Fund at the time, and we've since uh, rebranded to North Companies just because we're doing work outside of New Orleans. Um, and so Alex also, through his company, you know, they do you know, large projects, commercial projects, a lot of federal work. Uh, for construction, and they also own 50% of an architecture firm. So we're not necessarily vertically integrated as much as we are vertically associated. And what it allows us to do, though, it allows us to see projects. We take our construction team. We're able to take our architects to a kind of a target project. And within two weeks, we can have a pretty you know, well-defined budget, a well-defined plan if it's something that we want to move quickly on. Uh, and actually, over the last four or five years, um, the frequency of the rate by which you had to put an offer in on a project and actually close, it was actually made me uncomfortable. I mean, we had the, we had the choir projects in, in instances where we just came up with our number and we had, you know, multiple offers on a property and we had to decide quickly this is something we wanted to do. So from that standpoint, it's been beneficial that we have these groups working together. Um, you know, one challenge when you have a, a company and you're doing all those things, though, is that, you know, 
when 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 something goes wrong, you know, it's you know, point fingers. It's like this. And so our contracts, while we have the contracts between the three companies, I mean, we're really all affiliated, and so it's it's tough. And so we've had some growing pains over the last you know decade trying to figure out how to make things work. Um, but in, in general, it is working. And so we're now expanding uh, to different markets, primarily throughout the southeast. Um, a few in Texas, uh, Georgia, Florida, Alabama. Um, but that's that's kind of what we're up to. I can imagine it helps with sourcing materials. Or, you know, you have the assumptions of what materials will cost because you have the people who are already doing it, like feeding you the information directly. And just in terms of like integrating between each other, it seems like a powerful, um, you know, mechanism. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I know you want to talk about. We're going to talk about kind of budgets and economic drivers in a little bit. But it's funny. Back in you know, I think 2021, you know, we we pretty much been doing most of our projects in the 200, 225 range per square foot on renovations and. I got a budget that came across my desk and one of my project managers brought it to me. It was like 280 square foot to do this renovation. And I looked at it and said, look, this is great and I know we're being conservative, but if we're going to start doing projects at 280, we all need to go find another job because we're not going to be able to make this happen. We're not going to be able to do this. <clears throat> Excuse me. We put that project out to bid and it came back like $500 square foot. And so um, it just gets into like kind of where we are as a, you know, I think in the industry right now in, in terms of across the board. Um, and just kind of where we are, but uh, it did allow us as a, as a Coviso group to kind of work and value engineer the budget down to where it was a project that we can do. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. So, um, John, could you tell us a little bit about, well, just, just intuitively, it seems like entertainment would be somewhat related to COVID and that might have a impact, but I'm curious, you know, how did COVID interact with the real estate that you work with every day, and then how have we... You're going to make me go back to this time? Yeah. Well, maybe you just touch it, but I really want to hear how things have evolved since that time sure. and where we are now. Sure, I'll give you a perspective. Look, uh, we, we started our company, as I said, in October of 2017. In March of 2020, every casino in the world was closed. In the world was closed, uh, like many businesses. So that's the bad news. The good news, um, back to being a former operator, is our tenants did not go into COVID with pre-existing conditions. They came into COVID as rich as they've ever been. So Vici was blessed in that we were one of only two REITs, publicly traded REITs, that collected 100% of our rent in cash during COVID. Because our tenants, in our real estate, or I should say our real estate is so valuable to our tenants, they knew they needed to continue to pay for that. If you're, if you're a Starbucks, you could build another Starbucks down the street. Back to Caesar's Palace, the likelihood of Caesar's being able to be, build another Caesar's Palace is not very likely, so you, you want to keep that lease. So fast forward, we would never want to go through COVID again. I'm sure you all would agree with that. But for our business, it proved out our model. When we started the company and we took it public at 18, we kept being told by investors, well, we don't know what's going to happen in a downturn. What's going to happen to your tenant's business in a downturn? I said, well, what happened when they went zero? Yep. Um, and when they went zero, they still paid our rent. And so as we came out of this, um, our company accelerated. We had greater access to the capital markets and we were able to grow even faster because there was a strong belief that our business, our, really our tenants' business, was incredibly durable, and its cash flows were durable, and as they came out, they had record earnings at the end in 21 and record earnings in 22. So again, 
Never could have predicted that. In April of 2020, it was not that fun. Um, but it, in our case, it actually proved out of models and uh, the operators reinvented their business and are doing well, which means we've uh, been doing okay. Great. So, Colin, since around that time up until now, how has how have you seen the market change, especially in New Orleans? How has you know the progress since that point um, evolved to to the place we are um, currently? That's a tough question because I don't know that everything here in New Orleans is just COVID related. Or uh, I, I think that there are a number of issues. And everyone here, I think, lives in New Orleans primarily, and, and um, there are a number of issues that we're facing as a city. Uh, I think over the last few years, I think maybe things in the city haven't progressed as much as we wanted want them to. And even on some levels, I'd say some of it's been unacceptable in terms of some of the things that we've been dealing with as citizens of the city. Um, you know, one thing that I see in, in a lot of the neighborhoods where we were developing, there was a lot of hope, a lot of excitement of things that were to come. You know, there's the, the Lafitte Greenway, which I still think over time, there's a story that's going to be told <laughs> about this, you know, corridor that's connecting the French Quarter to City Park. Uh, and there are a lot of early movers that are buying assets along the Lafitte Greenway, trying to help tell a story about what's going on there and really doing some really cool projects. Uh, we were one of them. And then over the last call of two years, things have really stalled out. I think a lot of the momentum that we saw, you know, either, even call it post-Katrina, I think there was a lot of momentum in the city post-Katrina. And then COVID, I think, really stalled a lot of it. And now, unfortunately, I think we're in a situation where um, we're facing some tough, tough economic times. Uh, and there, there's significant, you know, when we're talking about, I'm, I'm on the multifamily side. Um, there are issues with you know, affordability and housing. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I don't think that, and, and I'm going to be, let me take a step straight. back. Let me take a step back. As a developer and doing these type of projects, I'm inherently the most optimistic person that I know. I have my partners who sit down with me like, man, you just got to stop being so optimistic. We're not going to get this. We're not going to do that. I'm like, yeah, we can. We can do that. We can take this building and do X, Y, Z. Um, but I can say right now, I think we are looking at some very serious issues moving forward as a city over the next two years. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, we had issues with kind of the economy and, and inflation on the construction pricing that happened. You know, this really 21 was really where we saw some shock. Uh, a lot of the projects that went forward, though, they still bore those costs. Well, I don't think that the full cost of those for rents and everything actually accelerating the inflation on housing has we've seen it yet. And so I'm concerned what's going to happen in this city over the next year to two years on affordability, or if not affordability and rents don't go up, you know, potentially landlords who aren't able to cover notes. I mean, there are a lot of things that are moving right now. Yeah. It's kind of a circular puzzle. And look, I, I hope it all comes together. Optimistically, I have my family here, and I will be here, and I'm going to fight for the city and do what we need to do. But it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I kind of see it as locational as insurance. I don't know, you should be seeing the same stuff we're saying. The insurance is double. 100% increase. The construction costs have two components to it, or maybe three. One is the cost of materials and equipment and the availability of it. And the other is labor, cost and the availability of it. Some of it, in terms of supply chain, is kind of catching up a little bit, but, but actually having the product to then send through the supply chain is the other issue. So in some places, that lack of availability or the, the cost is still an issue. 
the biggest thing is labor. Because guess what? People are deciding they don't want to do certain things anymore, right? Or they moved or whatever the situation is. Or there's a lot more work in Homa or you know, yes. still and Florida. Still. Yeah, with the, the other places that were impacted with, and, and you know, there are teams that travel to do that uh, reco uh, recovery, uh, disaster recovery work. So when everybody's trying to do something at the same time that is becoming problematic with all the other interest rates, um, that, that labor availability, the cost, and insurance, it could totally kill you. And time is, should, you know, you, you need to always pay attention to time because guess what? If a deal takes me 15 months, the deal takes me 20 months, if a deal takes me 30 months, guess what? I'm getting the same fee. So I want velocity, right? So, you know, there's a couple of things. So you you got to be strategic about it. I'm not saying rush in, in, in with haste, but you want to be as efficient as you can because you're going to get paid the same thing regardless. This is why you put together a very good panel because <laughs> because they're, they really have these issues they're dealing with with labor. I, and I'm sitting here going, well, shoot, the biggest issue is financing costs. Yeah. Right? So get just get hit home on financing costs. We're, again, we're we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're much oh, on that. Yeah, yeah. We're much on that, too. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that we're an investment-grade company. A year ago, if we wanted to raise 10-year paper, it would have been in the threes. It would have had a three handle. Can anyone guess what it would be today if I wanted to? Yep. Seven and a quarter? Seven, seven and a quarter. Up to seven and a half in some instances. As an investment grade right. company. Right. So think if you're a developer right now and you've now put together a budget a year ago expecting that you were going to get con construction loan at four, five, whatever. Well, first of all, if you can get it today, you're lucky, but you're going to get it in well into the double digits. It's killing so it's several a, so, deals right so now. Not all, not so as time. you think about yeah. developing, you have all these factors hitting at once. Can I even get the material? Can I even get the labor? How long is it going to take me? And this is not a New Orleans issue. This is a urban core issue of the United States right now that you're seeing other than Some Nashville, global. Austin. Some global. You know, and, and, and that's yeah. what I was going to say. And the one thing yeah. that I'm even more concerned about, Three years ago, you know, somebody said, hey, there's going to be a global pandemic. It's going to shut the world down. And I said, look, I would put my life savings. That's not going to happen. I would have lost it all. Well, Caesar's Palace, I would have kind of <laughs> gave all. But, you know, so the one thing that I'm really concerned about, you look at the ports and where we're getting a lot of our, you know, materials from. Think about all these Chinese ports. I think I saw a statistic from an economist. I think out of the top, you know, 20 ports internationally, I think 15 of them are from China. Well, if China continues moving down this kind of zero COVID and there's another lockdown, I mean, I can't imagine what's going to happen with, with prices. They, they'll Apple has already said, don't expect as many iPhones because I cannot get my chips from China. Yeah. So Just this is a way that's an interesting time for you all. Uh, not, we're not trying to depress you yeah. along the way. But, but it's stuff you need to be thinking about, particularly in real estate, and depending on where you, what type of business that you get in. And no matter which type of business you're in, you always have issues that you're dealing with at the time. But what's, to me, it's been the velocity of change. Right. Uh, at least, on, at least on the financing. Never uh, in 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 anyone's lifetime have we seen rates move this fast and be this volatile. 
Never, in anyone's lifetime, your parents' lifetime, your grandparents' lifetime, no one, there's never been a time that rates have moved like, like this. And finally, and you guys know this, we are coming off 15 years of free money. And so developers, this, my colleagues to my left, are all learning that the, that the future is going to be very different than the past and how you think about deals and how you put together deals. And I do think the more creative teams will ultimately be the most successful ones. I agree, and I was actually thinking about, you know, when I was in school, 2011, 12, 13, we were modeling projects with a yeah. professor. I remember we were modeling them at six and a quarter percent, and our cap rates, we were using seven percent cap rates, and those are fun. And, you know, then I get into the profession, and all of a sudden, we saw our first five handle on our rate, and I said, man, this is cool. Then I saw our first four, and I'm like, wow. And then we were doing a project in 2020. Thank God we closed it right before, you know, we closed March 30th of 2020 at construction. Yeah, it was good. But it was 3.5%. And I was blown away to think about it at the time. And, and, and it was. It was free money at the time. Um, and so it's not that we are historically, you know, somewhere we haven't been, but it's, it's the way flash how quickly we've moved to where we are today. And I think, I think you're actually already starting to see it. There, the private market is pretty small, okay? You can see with, with homes. I think when interest rates and mortgage rates start skyrocketing, people were freaking out we're not going to be able to sell them. Well, now you're starting to see the, the arms start to become really famous again. You know, everybody is buying properties using arms because they're, they're betting that interest rates will eventually level off and come back down. Will we see three and a half, four? I, I don't know. I doubt it in the next five years. But I'm sure things will stabilize. And so um, good news is I think we're the, – the pessimism or some of the, the concerns is what we've been through, right, and now how quickly things have changed. And then I believe that things are going to stabilize. Hopefully, over the next year, two years, we will see stabilization. But I do think if this is an industry that you want to go in, dif different than kind of what I used to do running casinos, you have to be on top of capital markets and how things are, are working constantly um, because it affects your day-to-day -day business all the time. And just to speak to that, I mean, we had a construction project that we were supposed to close in October in Tyler, Texas, and it was going to be a conversion of an old hotel. We're converted to 140 units and. We were set to close, and we had a four and a quarter you know, interest rate. That's what we were going in at. Well, all of a sudden, you know, rates start going up. Now they're at five, and while well, the bank has to sensitivity test a two-point spread on our operating expenses, and then all of a sudden it continues to go up, and we get to a point that we can't close because we don't have the proceeds, and then we get pushed into going to HUD financing, and even HUD financing at this time is still a struggle. So, and it takes forever to close it. It does a year. Yep. Yep. Great. Well. On that note, I have a challenging question that I don't think anyone's going to want to answer, but I'm challenging you guys to give me a, a yes or no answer, and then I'll give you a chance to back up what you say. But the question now you realize is, we're media trained, so we can answer whatever the hell we want. <laughs> <laughs> so fair um, let's see. Are we in a recession? Maybe. Uh, I'm saying yes. I'd say it depends on what definition we're going to use. Yeah. So, Media train. We answer what we wanted to answer. Great. Well, I guess we'll start with what definition would you want to use, and you know, what are you thinking about when you're trying to? Think back to my time in school. I mean, I would say that you know, over uh, two two quarters we're going down, but I mean, I think this third quarter uh, we're projecting the GDP to go up. But I, I would say, um, if you think about what the equation for what GDP is, okay, and this is just. And this is something I encourage, right, for, for anybody going into this profession or even going into any profession. I think look at the data yourselves. Try to think, what does this mean? Okay, so I think about what is the calculation for GDP. It's private investment plus um, private spending plus government spending, government investing, plus um, the net difference between exports, okay? So 
spending from the private sector can't go up. And, and with the inflation market, until we start seeing inflation, I, I don't see how it's going up. Um, investment is down. So then spending is down. Investment, I think, will be down because interest rates. Okay, So private investment and spending is going to be down. So that's downward pressure on GDP now. Now, we just went through an election cycle, so I do think that there's some you know, certainty that the government, I don't think the government's going to stop investing. They just passed you know, the infrastructure bill. There's going to be government spending. We know that money is coming, and it's going to be a lot. So maybe it equals out. But then the exports. So when we talk about trying to keep in touch and trying to understand all the different capital markets and what's going on, if, if everybody's been paying attention, the value of the dollar lately has been skyrocketing compared to Europe, compared to every other currency around the, the globe. Well, that's going to drive our exports down. That's going to drive imports up. So when that happens, there's more pressure pushing the GDP. I think we're maybe you know a couple of things away from kind of GDP, maybe another quarter from dropping. And the last thing I would say, one of the uh, drivers of what this new definition of GDP was when there was this argument, is GDP going down or is it a recession, was jobs. And no, jobs have been adding, getting added, getting added. Well, this is the first time I've seen FedEx cutting jobs before Christmas holidays, 10,000 jobs getting cut. We see Amazon cutting 20,000 jobs. You know, you see all these companies Meta, that are cutting, everybody, everybody cutting, Twitter, yep. and that eventually is going to have a significant, you know, ripple effect. So, are we in a recession? I don't know. Are we headed to a recession? I would happen to believe with some of the kind of larger outfits out there that we're heading still into. Yeah. So I'm going to say we're in it. I don't know on the line, but he what he said was perfect. The only thing I would add is, you know, we can continue to. The government can act, it'll increase the interest rates. Fine. It's going to stop spending and some other things. However, then all the people who could spend are losing their job right before Christmas, right? So that's going to put a hit on biggest sale time of the year, starting Black Friday tomorrow, and all these people have their, their peak slips, right? But even if they did have money and we don't have access to the things that we rely on China for, we still got some issues. And so it's it's not just the rates, it's all these other things happening quickly and at the same time. Right? Meaning the multiple the multitude. And so that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. And I'll answer this in as a as a you mean someone who runs a, a, a public <laughs> no no a, a public company, you know, whether we're in it or not. I get paid to, to create what I'd call uh, situational readiness. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time saying, if this happens, how are we going to run our company? And there's a lot of different ways we look at that. So whether I believe we're in or not, I've got to run the company in a way with, based on what I see in front. And we, we spend a lot of time planning to say, if this happens, if we are in a recession, if interest rates to at the 10-year get up to eight. What do we do? How do we continue to grow? Because as, as a public REIT, we're a deal shop. Our, our job is to grow the company. So whether we're in a recession or not in a recession, guess what our shareholders want me to do? Give them the money. They, they, Show they, them the they, money. They, they, they want us to grow. Right. So we better figure out in these different buckets how we're going to do it, how we're going to do it differently than when we started the company, when interest rates were at or 4%. So given everything that's going on in the market, how are you positioning your portfolios to protect from maybe some, you know, catastrophic or not, <laughs> not great outcomes? And, um, you know, how are you like, looking forward through, the, uh, through that as well? I'm going to continue to follow up on what he said. 
you know, it's not just in this business because all we do all day is problem solve, quite frankly. Um, it's better to have a plan B and sometimes a plan C, right? Because you just don't know and you may not even have it fully baked, but you should have you should have thought through enough of, oh, I have these potential options because, because what I know are two things. One, the calmest one in the room is going to lead you out of the crisis, whatever crisis you see. And you're calmer when you thought through things and say, oh, I have this thing to try or this thing to try before I start, you know, really getting jumpy inside. And so... Um, let that guide you a little bit. But for me, on, on what we're doing with real estate, we're planning, we know it's going to take some time for our particular project in um, at the River District. We have to do a lot of infra infrastructure work, so that's going to probably increase that construction cost a little bit. However, it gives us a little gap in time. We're still planning all the projects, but we can sort of... Um, Put a little slack and maybe the start date because we have all this and infrastructure I mean we're putting new roads we're putting new traffic um, uh, sewer drainer drainage fiber I'm gonna get to that tech question but fiber is really important and so that gives us a little stack on you know before we go vertical I'll go back to the situational readiness a little bit I mean for, for 10 years, the money was so cheap. We knew this this time was coming. Uh, I think there was a catalyst with COVID and things kind of getting out of hand. But, you know, as a company, we were anticipating rates going up. I mean, we've, uh, as a company, one, we've been looking at kind of lowering our leverage on projects. One, because we want to and we think it, we can move quicker. We, we've kept cash to be able to do that. Two, because banks aren't lending as much anyway at this point. So I think we're forced into that scenario. Uh, you know, two, we're looking at different financing, um, you know, different financing tools. Um, some that we had had meetings, you know, a year or two ago, hey, this is an interesting concept, but, you know, there's really not a need for us to explore this right now or do this for this project. But, you know, at this point, you know, we're, we're using different financing tools that we hadn't used facilities in the past. Um, you know, the other thing that uh, we're doing is strategic partnerships. So I think, you know, we are working with other developers, other tenants. Uh, and in fact, we took a, you know, press pause on all of our assets and we looked at them and said, look, everything, we may have, may have spent a million dollars to date on getting this project, you know, titled and getting it ready, but those are sunk costs. Does it make sense moving forward for us to pivot and find a better use here? Uh, there are different, you know, incentives that are being offered. There's the ARPA, you know, um, legislation that came out, and a lot of, you know, local governments are actually willing to put grants towards projects for certain uses. So we're exploring those. I mean, there are just different things that we're doing as a company. Um, and, and the last thing I would say, for us, we've really been focused on this overlap with historic tax credits, but a historic tax credit project can be very complex, can take you know a lot of time. Um, we're looking into some horizontal developments, so taking dirt and actually phasing projects. So to do a $60 million project and get it all financed at once, banks are having a hard time financing that. But maybe you know doing a $60 million project, but we're phasing it. So it's only a $10 million, $10 million, $10 million. We continue executing on phases, and those are things that we're working on as well. What we're doing is, uh, well, you got to be very careful with your underwriting but our business we're spread investors so we're very clear on what our cost of capital is I, I joke with my CFO like every day we should look at it every day but when we do a deal we historically have gone out and raised uh, the, we announced the deal we go raise debt and equity that debt the other day you know we're talking about different ways to finance we saw an opportunity amazingly this happened where our equity was trading better than our debt 
And we did a block trade and raised $580 million in one day, which is not a way of where, what we usually do. We usually wait for a deal and then go out and do this. But we've changed a little bit of strategy to say, hey, there could be some opportunities. We have over $4 billion of liquidity right now. There could be some unique opportunities during this unrest. So we have been talking about the negativity of things that are going on are tough. But I think my friends would say, and I'd tell you, during those uncertain times, there are companies that make a lot of money and make very good investments um, that become experts in certain areas where there's been displacement. And we're, we have ramped up to say, look, cash is important at this time. If there becomes an amazing piece of real estate that we want to own, uh, it'd be nice to have cash and, and we've been able to we'll do that. I can't tell you what we're looking at, but i uh, tell you there could be some interesting opportunities. That's okay. called look for distressed sellers, not distressed assets. Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, just to, before we ask the next question, just to fill everyone in on kind of how interest rates and how the economic pressures, how that relates to um, pricing and how that might be changing pricing or you know creating some discounts. I'm curious if you could kind of explain you know how this may create opportunities. What opportunities are you looking for? And then I mean in your situation, you probably are able to you might be able to use more equity than debt. But sure. um, with yep. construction, are you also thinking about going with all cash? Are you thinking about you know still trying to get construction zones even if it might be negative leverage and not you know as powerful as it could be? I'm just curious in terms of. What opportunities are there, and, and how are you going to be able to take advantage of them? I'll start with just one one point, so you all realize this: sellers' expectations never move as fast as the market. What I mean is, if you are selling an asset today, you're you are using benchmarks off the past two or three years and saying, "Well, I should be getting this. I should be getting this." And I'm quick to say, "Well." That was at a time when there was 3% money. It's now 7% money. And so what's happening, you'll hear a lot from real estate companies, big and small, that sellers' expectations simply aren't moving towards the reality of how a real estate company like ours would pay for it. So until that happens, you probably won't see as many transactions until there becomes an inflection point. We're seeing that in many of the large capital markets, and I'd be interested to see how you all are seeing it in your markets. We also have not seen it yet. We are raising funds, particularly right now, to have cash. <laughs> uh, going back to your question, just in terms of cash versus equity and kind of the capital stack, we're also exploring just all cash projects and you know getting them completed because we're talking about velocity. If there are projects we can get completed, let's get them completed, and then on the back end, maybe rates have come back down. You know, going back again, I, I love the. Situational readiness kind of thing. I tell the people I work with all the time, our job from every aspect of the project is to eliminate questions. The worst thing that could be is like, hey, is there have an unanswered question? As long as we can eliminate all the questions and you know, get out all the questions, all unknowns, and we're confident in the project. You know, right now it's tough on the financing, but if we have the, the capital to go, we go. We can get the project completed and we can refinance. So, in terms of opportunities, what kind of opportunities are you hoping to accomplish? And are you looking for a specific amount of a discount that you're, um, you know, just in terms of like how you're, how you may be thinking about it for, for anyone? No, I, I'm really focused. This project's going to take us oh, ten years, right? To fully, we we have over forty acres, and it's a mix of hotels, apartment buildings. Uh, 
entertainment, uh, cultural, office building, and so, you know, we're going to be busy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're just focusing on just making sure it happens, and you just have to figure it out. You just have to be really creative and um, poking holes and, and, and you know, get, have the right team, having the right team. Another thing that's unique about my projects are um, because they're catalytic, they usually involve public-private partnerships. And what I mean by that is that local, state, and federal government incentives are usually available or and or required in order to see it for to fruition because you're early, right? And they can't underwrite. So you may say and be totally convinced, market study and all, I'm going to get $3 rents. But because a market doesn't exist, they say I'm only going to give you two bucks. And so there's a gap there. And so depending on what you're trying to accomplish, we have mixed income housing. That means we're going to take care of people who have some affordability issues. And by doing that, the government want, may want to be supportive of that. And there are types of incentives that make that available because you always need affordable housing, period. But when I put affordable housing next to the convention center, why, why do I say that? Because one of our top industries is hospitality, right? And those workers work hard, but they have income restraints. And so why wouldn't, if it's in our best interest, to create opportunities for conventions to come, people to go to casinos, whatever they want to do, right? Entertainment of New Orleans, and not take care of the people that have to help us be successful. So why isn't it a good idea for them to be near their work and walk to work and have some of the same amenities that we can be afforded? And so that's what we're trying to do to have it where it's a neighborhood everybody can enjoy, especially the people who are helping in a, are a key part of our successes. So um, that's our strategy. You know, we're, we're, we're doing everything. Uh, we're backing it up. And so there are some partnerships that... Um, are available because we're trying to do that. Let me give you just one example of how the markets have changed have led to a new strategy at Vici. So um, we just announced a deal probably about a month ago with a company called Canyon Ranch. I don't know if any of you have heard Canyon Ranch. They're a fitness um, spa. spa destination resort. We, we announced that we are going to fund their next development in Austin, Texas. We're going to put up 100% of the money. And on the back end, after they stabilize, we have a call right to buy the real estate. And I only share that in that if, you, if I was on this panel two years ago and you asked me, do we do development? I'd say, no, our cost of capital is not good enough. Everyone can get cheaper cost of capital. The issue today is they, they couldn't get cheaper cost of capital. So this gave us an opportunity to get money to work three years before we usually would. And it gave us a pathway to real estate ownership. So although I don't think anyone likes that interest rates have gone up, it's given a company like us, whose cost of capital has remained fairly stable because our public equity has remained very strong, an opportunity to get into a new business and a new way to get money to work. So, that's just one example that when things get bad or hard, there are opportunities for companies. You just need to 
change your strategy sometimes. Yeah, and I guess to zoom in a little bit on that, um, Vici is the one of three REITs in the S&P 500 that year to date has a, a positive, you know, return. Um, like that's a, I guess being the, the market by a landslide, I kind of want to zoom in what makes the strategy unique, what makes like the leases that you have unique and kind of just go into why that may be the case. Uh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, it's V-I-C-I, we're trading on the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. We are. And, the, and that's NFA, no financial advice. That's exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. We, we have been, uh, this year has been a, a, a very good year for us. You, you are correct. Uh, our shareholders have been very supportive. We are the number one performing REIT in the S&P 500. And you're asking why? A little bit is it's taken us five years to prove out what was going on, and back to the to, to the end to the question I answered regarding our tenants, right? What had to be proven out is that the tenants' business was durable through all cycles, um, and our tenants reinvented their business during COVID. Give me an example. So Caesars, which is one of our largest tenant, is running their businesses 800 basis point higher in margin, 800 basis points. I worked in the casino business for 23 years. I didn't increase margin by 800 basis points. So instead of sitting around when the business was closed, we had some tenants go and reinvent their business that made them more profitable. And so what has happened is institutional investors are seeing this opportunity to invest in real estate in businesses or tenants' businesses that are very strong. And there's still opportunity for our cap rate to compress. Meaning, does this make any sense? I'll just give you an example. We bought the Venetian. Anyone been in the Venetian in Las Vegas? Okay. It's the largest hotel in the world. There's 7,000 rooms. It's the largest private convention center in the world. It's got over 14 million square feet of real estate. We bought it for a 6.25 cap two years ago. If you were to go buy a pizza hut in the middle of Iowa, you'd probably pay a five cap for that. Does that make sense to any of you in this room? You can buy the world's largest hotel. It's gonna generate more than a half a billion dollars of cash. It has diversity of revenues, casino, hotel, convention, food and beverage, spa, I can go, I can go on and on. Retail. Retail, sold for a 6.25 cap. Now let me continue why there's this opportunity, because you'll love this, because you said retail. Seven years ago, the retail inside the Venetian was sold separately. It's called the canal shops. It was sold for a four cap. So the, excuse my language, the good shit was sold for a 6.25 cap, the casino, the hotel, the food and beverage, and the tough business, retail, was sold for a four cap inside the same building. So I'm, I'm telling you, you're asking why we perform, is we're telling this story that the real estate and the business is completely mispriced. And that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity for cap rates to continue to compress over this time. Now, that could be tough with me buying things, if people hear my speech and say, well, Payne's out there saying things should be cheaper than six cap, right? Makes it harder to buy. But a little bit of, that's a long way of saying, what has been taking place? Why are you holding up when others are not? Um, that's part of the story that we're telling is there, there's opportunity to continue to grow and we think that there's been some mispricing in the market. Yeah, and, and, and 
goes back to that philosophy on the recession. He doesn't think it's hit the bottom yet, so he's waiting with his money on the ready. And I'm worried about, you know, sort of the other side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we both would be described as we're in the real estate business, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And and we're thinking about different things at different times and different sizes and different locations and where we're going to do it and all those things. Right. That's what makes the industry very interesting. And it's very interesting because your project is going to expand past any length of a market cycle. Um, for oh yeah, project, exactly. Which is exactly. Pretty interesting. It's like it's really hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. But I guess it's a good time to ask. No one has crystal ball. That would be amazing. I think we'd all be the best real estate investors in the world if we did. But does anyone have any predictions of what's going to happen over the next 12, maybe 18 months um, with interest rates, maybe with inflation, but um, generally with uh, the real estate industry? Yeah, I can't really predict, but I'm going to tell you why I have my optimism, optimism for my neighborhood, right? Besides, you know, real estate's a location thing, having a key location. Guess what I have? Ocean going. River going, cruises. I have the <coughs> world. That's create some things. I have the convention center that's now back in business and people are growing. I'm at the intersection of, you know, basically the French Quarter, the warehouse district, where everybody who's coming to the city is hanging out. And I'm also that sort of back end corridor for everybody who goes uptown or the back way to Metairie, right? They're doing Chapatulas some kind of way. So that means I have eyeballs and traffic counts that are running back and forth next to where I'm going to be and walking a lot. So all of those things means I don't have, I'm creating a demand generator, but I have a lot of demand generators all around me that are going to have eyeballs on all the things that I'm doing, and that gives me optimism. That's a great project, and it's going to be, you know, talk about optimism, it's going to be transformative for the city, that, that project will be. Um, bring in some optimism to it as well. I think we're in for 12, 15, 18 months of just some tough times just trying to get projects off the ground. I think there are going to be, you know, in that time, though, I think in the next like, six to 12 months, we're going to start seeing some, you know, distressed sellers and distressed projects that need to be saved. And I think there are going to be opportunities across the board for a number of people to, you know, take projects and, and actually come in and kind of, you know, be the hero, come in and fix projects or, or salvage them or do something interesting with them. And, and I do think that over time we're going to see the cap rates start coming back down. Right now, you know, we're seeing things all over the board. There's a lot of volatility. Uh, but I do think that people are, you know, and looking at it from an investment perspective, we're going to make a lot of money over the next 24 months. And I do think, you know, one of the questions we're going to get into, I think there are going to be opportunities for, for people like in this room, you know, to, to, to get involved in some of these companies because there is going to be opportunity. Um, you know, understanding over the next 12, 15 months is going to be tough, but I think on the back end of that, I think it's going to be great. Okay. And um, let me say one more thing. In down markets, right, people build. And that's exactly what his companies were doing. They were, you know, being strategic. And so when everything came back, they had um, great returns. And so always remember that. Uh, that's the time to keep your head down and just be creative and, um, and keep, keep what, doing great things. What did Churchill say? Never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and I think that, yeah. that uh, great operators do that. So 
uh, it's look, it's easy to be successful during great times. Yep. You know, it's during these unusual volatile times where you find the best operators, and that's how we think about where you know great operators make our real estate look good. You know, and so we that's how we think about it. Great, and so it's moving forward past this volatile time, kind of see, looking forward at the future. Um, I guess starting with Tara, Tara but. Um, what, what is technology? How is technology becoming more significant in real estate? And I guess you could even give us a broader perspective given your other endeavors. Kind sure. of kind of talk about how, um, yeah. The, sure, yeah. and I'm going to include him in, in uh, or one of, the, one of his uh, tenants in, in my conversation. So the first thing is real estate, like maritime, like healthcare, like music, some other things have been slow to the party, right? But during the last several years, it's been really picking up. And when you think about technology and real estate, it goes from, I'm going to call horizontal to all the verticals, right? So what do I mean by that? I mean that everybody's got a phone, a little computer that they do a lot of things on. And guess what? That's power, right? That's taking power. You need fiber. You need certain types of fiber. And so where I am not right now is we don't all have 5G, but we need 6G. And why am I saying that? Because let's say you work in an office building, you shop at the retail tenants, you are in the hotel, everything in my district, right? You're going to be looking in a mirror, buying things, trying things on. You got robots delivering. This all happens today. You got robots delivering you food. When you do Uber, here comes the robot. Um, you have autonomous vehicles, you have, you have drones. All of this stuff is already happening in different parts of the country, sometimes world. All of that requires power. And so if you're not laying the foundation of fiber in your real estate, you're gonna have a challenge. Healthcare, they're doing all kinds of things. So you're doing that from home, you need fiber. You need to be fast. You don't like when your internet's not working and quickly. So that's one thing to think about. And then from the operational side, um, you can look up this, this company called Fifth Wall. And what happened? A lot of the big boys, MGM, the related companies, Hilton, Starwood, all these different toll brothers, they said, you know what? Let's all chip in our money into this venture capital fund and we're going to focus on real estate. And guess what we're going to get as the LPs, limited partners? We're going to get first access to the tech. And we're going to be able to try it out before everybody else. It's about 100 LPs or companies. And so all of those things, they've been doing this since 2016. And so they have been able to kind of have a leg up on all types of, of tech. And it goes everything from risk management on your construction site, just managing your construction site to, uh, you know, there's a local, I'm gonna give you two local companies, two land grads, a company called Rent Check. If any of you have ever rented an apartment, I'm sure you have, what if you had the opportunity to walk through and do a self-inspection in video, right, all of the, the current conditions so that when you move out, you get 100% of your deposit back. You don't want to have a fight on the deposit that this was broken 
No, it was broken when I got there. You have video evidence. And so it's a platform that allows you to do it when you move in so you can do it. Video before, video after, give me my money back, right? They have, you know, it's, it's just, you can do investments. There's another big company called Cadre. And what you can do is just, a, it's just an investment platform where you can find uh, real estate opportunities. So anyway, what I'm getting to is we usually didn't have all of those things and it's slowly coming into um, fruition to help with management, but also because we're being forced because people like to operate from that computer in their pocket. Yeah, and I guess just to add a layer to this, Fifth Wall's latest fund was $500 million for climate tech and climate yeah. prop tech. Yeah. So I want to know maybe <coughs> how's that playing into your, um, to your business as well? Are you well, seeing that in your lending for uh, any yeah, requirements with equity and in, in debt? Yeah. No, well, if, you're gonna work, if you're going to go work for a public company, you better understand ESG. Yeah. I mean, it's as, it, it's as simple as that. And look, uh, we're a triple net lease REIT, so we don't do anything, really. Right? We don't operate anything, but we have tenants that we get held accountable for taking care of our buildings. And the technology that's happening on, uh, you know, from the ESG side on solar and, and water in particular in Las Vegas is, is really magnificent, and technology will continue to play a huge part of that. Yeah, we, you know, we, we haven't um, yet, um, but one thing that we've done in, in looking at kind of our offerings to our, new te our tenants currently uh, you know, all-inclusive all packages. So their rent includes you know, Wi-Fi, which will be run through fiber. Um, you know, I think we've taken out all cable through through projects. Everything's Cat six. Everything's high speed. Um, and so those are things that I think tenants are starting to expect, or at least you know they're definitely differentiators that we're able to provide to our tenants. But yeah, we're having lenders that actually required as well, but we want to to as well because just think about this: what if a pipe a pipe is leaking underground in our in our district. Well, if we had sensors on them and we had sort of an operating dashboard, we'd be able to troubleshoot shoot and know exactly where that was and minimize uh, the damage. What if we have large events, which we plan on having, and guess what? I needed to change the traffic light patterns on my own so that traffic could move a little more efficiently as opposed to the regular cycle when it was, you know, typical during the day. Well, with a software platform, we can do that. Uh, and then within the building, we have all types of opportunities for, you know, from the key swaps to, which is going to be different, different uh, platforms, um, to just management of your AC systems or whatever, just solar, you know, how you're storing everything. You know, we may be able to generate um, electricity from the river water. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's, it's very It's just terrible. a span, it's a span of things. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a lot more. Um, well, the last, I want to open up the floor to questions, but the, the last question before we get into that is um, I'd like to hear what advice do you have for people in this room for creating a career or a life that they could be proud of? You want to start, man? Sure, I'll start. Um, I got something, but yeah. I've been talking. <laughs> so, I guess in this industry, you know, talking about you know wanting to be proud of it, I think I actually go back and read my entrance essay to the school from time to time, give me a little bit of perspective, but you know. If you're in this industry, you really are affecting people's lives. I had actually a, a, a conversation or a meeting last week with a tenant 
who was upset that there was water leaking through a window during a rainstorm. And it was an old historic window that had been replaced. And I, you know, they wanted four months rent returned to them. They wanted to move out of the house and, and they had a young baby and they were really upset. Um, and it reminded me of my essay and that like, you're, you're affecting the way people live. You're affecting the way that, you know, what you're providing to people, it's affecting livelihoods. And so I had to take a step back and like, look, you're not getting four months around the back of my head. I was thinking that, but you know, I had to be as, um, empathetic and I was as empathetic as I possibly could be. And we worked with them. We actually relocated them to another apartment and, you know, we're able to provide them. We helped them move. We paid for all their moving and things like that. And so, I don't want to be corny and say, like, oh, find your why, right? I mean, that's one of those things. But I do think that, you know, there are a ton of different things that you can get involved in in real estate. Uh, so I would recommend, you know, first off, while you're in school, you have the opportunity. I would study every aspect from the deal from, you know, site acquisition, site identification, negotiation, through, you know, pre-development, understanding drawings, understanding bids, understanding how we go through development, understanding entitlements. I mean, really try to sink yourself in and understand everything. Get through, you know... Um, you know, delivery of a project, you know, from, and not just, not just, you know, what you're going to be dealing with as, as a real estate professional, but also what the end users of the building are and trying to view the, the real estate through their eyes. And so I can't tell you, you know, how to have a rewarding, I would say, find what your passion is in that. I mean, there are so many different, perf, you know, careers and job paths here. Find something that you're passionate about. And uh, if you do find something you're passionate about, just try to make an impact. Try to make sure that you remember that it's affecting people's lives. Whether it's a restaurant that you're doing, I mean, it's affecting the way people are eating. It's affecting the way that, you know, a restaurateur is able to deliver, you know, food and sustenance to people and, and, and quality of life. If it's, if it's industrial, you know, you're affecting the way that, you know, we're able to receive goods and, you know, try to do the best that you can. Uh, and I think uh, that would be kind of it. Just find one thing that you're interested in or, just trying to make sure that you fulfill that. And the last thing I would say is celebrate the small successes. So I think about, you know, in this industry, you can get beat up a lot, at least from the development perspective. And there are a lot of times where you're trying to work things. and you, It's a 3D puzzle. Putting a project together is a 3D puzzle. And I can guarantee you, no matter what you do in a project, you can have a plan. Like Tara was saying earlier, you better have a plan B, C, and D. And I always say, let's be Marines. Let's adapt and overcome because we're going to have to. But... When you finish a project and you're working on six other, don't forget to like, you know, tap everybody on the shoulder. Hey, good job. That was a great job. We're happy we did this one. And you look back on it and over a course of period, over a course of time, you actually have a portfolio you're building, you're you're proud of. It. So just those are kind of my little tidbits. Right. So um, echoing all of that, but also um, being brave enough where if you're not doing something you like within here, don't be afraid to pivot. Right, because if you're not feeling good, the other people aren't feeling good either. They may not be saying it, but it's best to be in a place where you feel good about waking up every day, and and you're able to learn and thrive. Um, and what's always important for me as well is that whoever has a watch, I know everybody doesn't have it. They use use um, their phone. If I said, "Can I take one part of this watch and get rid of it?" What would it be? Probably say, you need it. That's how you work together. Well, think of that as your team, right? Because we don't, it's not an I. We all contributing something. I don't care where you are in the map, but you're contributing something. And always um, remember that. And that's sort of the pat on the back is that 
you can't lift yourself alone. Somebody's always there to help um, execute whatever the overall vision is um, and, you know, allow people to have a voice. A lot of few things, less about real estate. Um, the father of three daughters around, uh, they're all around your age. I, number one thing I say is run your own race. Don't run your parents' race. Run your race. See this? Put it down at times. People are going to graduate this next year and you're going to see someone go on to Wall Street and be like, oh, they're so successful and this and that. Run your own race. You're going to all move at different times, in different paces. It's your race. It's no one else's. No one else is keeping time except yourself. So that's critically important as you start your career. I find that your generation loves to look at this and see that only the good stuff is being put on this. And they say, so-and-so is better than I. They're two years ahead of me. They're, 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 they've accomplished. I'm way behind. What are you behind? Get a lifetime. Look, I was a casino executive for 23 years. I'm sitting in front of you as a, as a, as a real estate person. The second one is live with integrity and lead by example. It's all you got. If you're in a deal, you're putting on deals, and, and you, you, you don't live with your integ have integrity, you won't do another deal. Third thing is a book by Ron Shapiro called The Power of Nice. There will be people who will tell you, oh, you need to be tougher. Being tough and nice, they can work together. Think about the people who call you. I know your generation doesn't necessarily call or text you. And you go, oh. And then think of the people that are really nice and you like to be around. That's the same way in business. I'm not saying we've been able to grow our company as fast as we have because we're nice. But people like to do business with us. The power of nice. And then the final one is be on time. It is respectful for the people you do business with. People who walk in the door and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Well, who the hell is not busy, right? And what I find is if you're on time, no matter if you're in real estate or not, you actually stay to a schedule. And then you can have balance in life because you've accomplished and you've stayed on that schedule and then you can do other things in this work. So those are the four, they didn't have all to do with real estate, but it's important for groups like this that are thinking about what they want to do. Of course, well, I appreciate that. And that's uh, definitely gonna ruminate on that later as I hope everyone does. Um, but I'd like to open up the floor for questions. Does anyone have any questions for these uh, leaders in front of us today? I'm a freshman, uh, and I'm from San Francisco, where there's a lot of talk about like affordable housing and um, thinking about like gentrification. So my question is, how do you sort of set the boundary between redeveloping and gentrification, and um, how is that relevant here? Because I know a lot about like my own area, but I'm a little unfamiliar as to how that is here. So um, most of my projects are pieces of property that don't have anything. So there are buildings that have sat vacant for 10 years or sometimes more, or like this land where nothing's there. And so um, we build affordability within it. So you could be in what someone might describe as a neighborhood that might look gentrified, you know, even though it's new. Um, but what you do is you have protections in place because um, so that those people, you know, who aren't as um, don't have all the means are able to enjoy the space as well, but it's protected, right? Because they have periods where it's 30 years and um, it can't, the rents are fixed or whatever the situation is. 
um, usually that is how. And then a lot, just part two on mine, um, you know, I have the coolness factor. And so why do I, why do I say that? That's in, that's in my uh, tagline is because I say artists are the arbiters of cool. So when you see all the new neighborhoods, it's usually kickstarted by some art, right? Some form. It could be food. If I told you that there was this hot restaurant, whatever, the, whatever your favorite food is, I don't care where it is. You're going if that's what you... And so, and so that helps people group together, just like the artists in Soho and other neighborhoods. And so um, what I'm getting to is they help make it cool. They should have an opportunity to stay. So... I this is not my business, but I'd say cities that make it difficult to develop, developers will move to other cities to yeah. grow. And I do, I do think that's going to be really interesting from your hometown. I think San Francisco is one of the large urban cores of America that probably was impacted the most during COVID. And it's a real interesting question of how is that city going to come back to the, the level? You, you've seen a lot of uh, conventions move out of that city and go to Las Vegas. I mean, I happen to know that because we're, that's the business that our tenants are in. And, uh, but it's a really good question and one that you're going to see, you know, for the next five, ten years, if, how is that city going to kind of rebuild itself and come back to life because there have been areas of the city that really were closed down and not come back. I'll just <clears throat> kind of echo both things. I mean, I, I do think when you're talking about gentrification and how you, it's, it's a tightrope even as a developer that you're, you're walking and, or you're thinking of as being an urban planner or you're thinking about just neighborhoods and how you want to live. I mean, like the last thing I think any of us want to do is to move people out of a neighborhood just because they can't afford it. And you see it, you know, you've seen it in New Orleans a lot um, across different neighborhoods. And I say that because you've had a lot of people who have moved here Know, from other cities and, and found the, the cost of living here so much more affordable, even though, you know, when you're comparing to Austin or San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and they moved to New Orleans, they're like, oh, it's so cheap. And so I think it's happened across multiple neighborhoods. And so uh, on, the, on the flip side, right, if, if there are blighted properties, if there are properties where you just have vacant, vacant lots, um, it, it's also a question of, you know, if we don't develop them and they sit here, I mean, we have issues that can come because of, you know, just blight brings crime, things like that. Um, a question that you know I actually you know with the, the mayor we would butt heads all the time because if we ever would get into a situation where we were told you can't develop this and say look we're trying to work on affordability and there's a supply demand component as well and I do agree on the mixed-use legislation in terms of you know y and really trying to encourage and I think the city uh, should try to incentivize more um, mixed-use development and I, I know they've tried uh, in, in terms of providing bonuses and things like that to allow developers to come in and, and, and um, provide, you know, incentivize low-income housing. Um, it's a tough situation, though, and, and it's one, you know, I was on, like, a national panel one time at, at a conference, and, like, really, there was somebody who was combative when they asked that question, and, and you know, it's never, it's never a... Well, you know, never what a you have to understand is not, across the country, none of the affordable housing works. Because if it costs three hundred thousand to build a build an apartment, like say one apartment unit, regardless of who lives in there, it's three hundred thousand dollars, right? And if, so if somebody can only pay half of that, where's the other one hundred fifty coming from? And so everybody's looking for that assistance, which also makes it difficult, which is also part of the problem 
why we don't have enough units because all of them require some type of subsidy. Um, and it's, it's a challenge, uh, but you just have to keep working at it. That's right. Yeah. Hi, I'm Zach. I'm here, Axon Lane from Sanford, Connecticut. You guys briefly touched upon ESG and ESG implications and awareness. Um, I just wanted to understand your thoughts about the trends in green development and integrating buildings, especially residential buildings, with vegetation um, and how important it is to prioritize green development um, in sustainable architecture. Uh, could you guys touch upon that at all and what you see as the trend um, in, in that space? Um, I'm not sure if you have it because he's not necessarily developing. But um, so I've always, I haven't necessarily done vegetation, but even in Blue Plate, um, you know, we have solar panels on the roof. I have um, all types from the plumbing to the electrical to sound attenuation, um, really creative um, uh, materials to minimize electrical bills, water, everything, not just for the tenants, but also for the, the, the landlord, right? Um, and we're trying to implement, we're, we are implementing a variety of things and going through some of that exercise right now, both within um, the district, like how we do stormwater management and some other practices, but nothing that's specific to having, you know, like a green roof or something like that. I haven't done it before. From our standpoint, I mean, we've, we haven't done the green roofs or green screens on properties, um, but it goes back to kind of trying to build the most efficient properties as possible. And we, you know, we do that, uh, you know, every, every design meeting that we have is focused on making sure that we can do that. Uh, and there are different reasons to do it for doing that. But I would say from our standpoint, I mean, uh, limiting the operating expenses and making sure the building is operating as efficiently as possible is number one. And for us, I mean, the fact that it is a benefit to the environment is number two. And I would also say, just sustainability of materials and using materials that are responsible or reusing materials uh, when you find something that we're very focused on. And we do it with, with you know, converting the old buildings. That's, that starts there, sort of tearing them down. Excellent. Well, um, we're running up on time, so I'll be it for questions. I want to, can we all give a, a round of applause to everybody? guys begin your career start and navigate your journey through the industry that you take all the advice and insight that we've gotten from these professionals today you got the heart and um, wish you best luck and let's do it happy thanksgiving if you learned a lot from today's presentation and enjoyed the panel could you please go to apple podcasts and leave a five-star rating and review on real estate milestones it would do a lot for the channel and help get incredible content like this out to everyone. And um, if you subscribe, you'll get more of it too. So hope you do it. Hope you enjoy. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.